lesson for today, the third Sunday after Pentecost, comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The gospel of the Lord. The people of God, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. A couple years back, we were in the height of Hamilton craze. I had just seen it on Disney Plus when they had premiered it there. I was listening to the music all the time. I had a lot of the music in my head. And for some reason that I do not remember, it seemed to make sense at the time, but now the reasoning is lost on me, I did one of the Hamilton raps during a sermon that was actually out on the church lawn. I don't remember why. Maybe everybody thought I was just showing off. It seemed to make sense at the time. But regardless of that, I'm thinking about some of the music and specifically one of the songs and even more specifically one of the lines or one of the lyrics that is from this song. Now, it's actually from the song, My Shot, and I want to read it for you to make sure I say it right. As Hamilton is talking about the revolution, the the fighting that they're doing, the war that they're having, he says this, and if we win our independence, is that a guarantee of freedom for our descendants? Or will the blood we shed begin an endless cycle of vengeance and death with no defendants? Hamilton's talking about a cycle, a violent cycle, in which something happens here, and there's bloodshed. And because of that, because of that turmoil, someone over here thinks the only way to make up for that is more violence, to cause harm to those who perpetrated this. And if that happens, then the next, the next one will do violence towards this one. And it will continue on and on and on, this vicious cycle. Sometimes it's called the idea of redemptive violence. This is an idea that is not new. And it has certainly not gone away in the couple of hundred years we've had since the Revolutionary War when Hamilton would have talked about it. This idea that if something is done wrong, the only way to truly atone for it or to truly make up for it is violence, which begets more violence, which begets more violence. This is an idea that I think is lying at the heart of what we have heard today. When we hear about this moment when Jesus, who has turned his face towards Jerusalem, his ministry's been going on, but he's beginning to make his way towards Jerusalem and the redemptive action that he will do through his his death and resurrection there in Jerusalem. As he's moving that direction, this travel narrative is going on and something oddball happens. And we hear 
that he sends a couple of his disciples on into a community that lies before him, presumably to try and find a place for them to stay, but we don't exactly know. And we hear that this is a community of Samaritans. Well, that raises a point. Turmoil between the culture of the Samaritans and the culture of the Jewish people. It was nothing new. There was a lot of angst that that lied between these two cultures. They both thought they were right and the other was wrong, and there wasn't a whole lot of mixing between the two. There wasn't a whole lot of love lost between them. And so when this group of Samaritans find out that, that it's Jewish people coming through, whether they realized it was Jesus or not, they turn him away. And then we hear about James and John. Lord, should we call down divine fire upon them and consume them? I got to give some tangential stuff about James and John here. Now, James and John were among the first four disciples, the first ones that were called by Jesus along with Peter and Andrew. They'd been with him the longest. They were among the 12. They had witnessed his teaching. They had witnessed his ministry. They had witnessed the various miracles and displays of divine power that Jesus had done. And now they're in the midst of this. Well, what's interesting about James and John, along with the other 12 disciples, is they have also had a taste of being the instrument of that divine power. A chapter or two before this story, there's a time when Jesus has empowered the disciples, giving them authority over diseases and unclean spirits so they can go out and perform miracles. We don't know how long that period of time lasted. It stands to reason it was fairly short. But for that brief period, James and John have had a taste of, hey, this is what it's like to be able to do miracles. We kind of like this. And maybe, just maybe, they were hoping to experience that again. This is not the only time throughout the course of the Gospels that we hear about James and John maybe getting a little bit too big for their britches. There is a time later on when they are closer to Jerusalem. It's it's later on in the story from where we're at here when they're actually getting close to what's going to culminate with the events of Holy Week. And they say, hey, Jesus, um, we would like for you to grant for us to sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into your kingdom. And that doesn't go over real well with Jesus, and it also doesn't go over real well with the other disciples. But we see these two guys seem to be a little bit, they maybe have a little bit of a tendency to be a little bit power hungry. And maybe, just maybe, after that little snippet that they've already had, and what they'll do later, not to mention another time that's coming up right after this, when Jesus takes like 70 of his followers, including the the 12 disciples, and sends them out two by two, again, empowered to be able to perform these miracles. Maybe, just maybe, all of these different little events are piling up to where James and John think, we really kind of like this. And this is what we get for being followers of Jesus. But what it really boils down to, regardless of their motivation, regardless of whatever makes them think that calling down fire from heaven to consume this this community of Samaritans simply because they rejected Jesus, Jesus smacks that down. Because it's not about power. And it's not about lording it over other people. And it's not about having access to divine authority. That's not what this life of fellowship, or rather than fellowship, I should say, this life of discipleship is all about. And the rest of this passage, not to mention countless different times of teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples, his followers, including James and John, 
but also for us as Christ followers 2,000 years later, is a, a look into what a life of discipleship looks like. These encounters that he has with these three random people in the second part of the story today, they reveal that. To follow Jesus does not mean it's going to be all hunky-dory. It's not going to give you the moral high ground over anything. It's not going to give you access to divine power. It's about the ways that we encounter one another and we proclaim what God is up to. But that doesn't seem to be the takeaway for what James and John have figured out. Now, I do scratch my head at these guys. Oftentimes, I wonder those two, along with Peter, seem to be privy to some pretty important moments in Jesus' ministry. But maybe, just maybe, it's not because they were special. Maybe Jesus looks at moments like this and says, those guys need some extra work, so I'm going to pull them aside. I think we all fall in the same trap at times when we think, what am I going to get out of this? What is the benefit to me? And we go one step beyond that, and we think, if you're not doing it my way, if you're not doing it the way that I understand it, you're doing it wrong, and you're unworthy. What Jesus reveals to us is that it's not about this idea of they're wrong, so we need to destroy them. He simply says, no, let's move on to the next place. There's another time when he sends the disciples out two by two. He says, hey, if a household doesn't accept you, just move on to the next one. It's not about destroying them. It's not about condemning them. It's about just being present in the world that we are a part of and sharing what we see God has done. The idea that we have been somehow called and empowered to rain down destruction or condemnation on those that we disagree with, who act out faith differently than we do, who live their lives and their reality and their existence differently than we do, will ultimately get us nowhere. And that, I believe, is why Jesus rebukes the two disciples today. They want to destroy this community simply because they didn't believe like we do. But Jesus is calling us to a different way, not that way of redemptive violence that begets the next patch of violence, which begets the next batch of violence that we've been talking about, but rather a way of harmony, a way of grace, a way of love and acceptance that comes from God. They are on their way to Jerusalem. We hear that in the passage today. That is where they are going. And what they are going to do, and more specifically what Jesus is going to somehow accomplish through his death and then his resurrection, is showing that there is no length that God will not go to in order to create a sense of peace and grace and love and harmony in the relationship that exists between God and humanity and between, among humanity as well. If we take nothing else away from this passage today, may we be reminded that the ways of condemnation and the ways of violence and the ways of anger and judgment are not what Jesus has called us into. Jesus has called us to proclaim that which God has done in the world. That is what we are called into. May we remember that as we go about our lives of following Jesus as, as Christ followers, 
called and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be in community with one another and to use the gifts that we have been given to further the kingdom, not to cause destruction and damage in the world.